Hello and welcome to another episode of Stories from Sydney, History of the Harbour City. I'm Jed. And I'm Alistair. And every fortnight, one of us tells the other a story from the rich and varied history of Sydney and her surrounds. Last episode, I shared a story. Alistair, do you remember what I was talking about? Of course I do, Jed. It was a wonderful story of Sydney's first railway uh, from what's now Central Station, or actually close to where now Central Station, uh, to well, not Parramatta, but Parramatta Junction. Am I correct about that? that? Right. And all of the uh, all the difficulties that they had while building it was a quite a long winded project. It took some time. And how many millimeters is standard gauge? I th- I knew that would come up, and so it's one thousand two hundred forty three point five. Close. One thousand four hundred thirty five. Oh wow! <laughs> and you gave me a clue last week. I certainly did, and my clue was that some notebooks were found in 1972 that have changed the way that uh, historians and a lot of people interested in early days of Sydney's colony um, look at that time period. Do you have any idea what that those notebooks might have been and who might have written them? I don't still. No one's given me any help and <laughs> I've resisted the temptation to Google it because it sounds super interesting. So I'm a blank slate. Write on me. I'm I'm really glad to hear that. I there was I've prepared this nice kind of like Indiana Jones starting where like there's a personal library and it wouldn't have worked if you already knew what it was. So that's great. <laughs> Alrighty, fire away. Before I begin my story, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we record our podcast. In my case, that's the Nisanan people of the Sierra Nevada Mountains. And in my case, that's the Wiradjuri people of the plains west of the Blue Mountains. And I'd also like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this week's history takes place, which is primarily the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, but also more generally the Eora Nation and the Darug Nation. Sovereignty was never ceded. So our story begins in the 1960s with a lady called Phyllis Manda Jones. And she's originally from Homebush, Sydney, so I've already got a Sydney connection in there, much better than the last episode. <laughs> And she's combing through the archives, libraries, and private collections of Britain for any historical documents related to Australia. And this is all part of what was called the Australian Joint Copying Project, which was basically a massive historical photocopying adventure in Britain to find all of the stuff that they had over there relating to our history. And they started doing this copying just after World War II, and they only ended doing it in about 1993. Just in time for the internet. Yeah. Yeah, so we've got a lot of microfilms right now in Canberra. <laughs> anyway, uh, Phyllis is in the archives of the School of Oriental and African Studies in London when she comes across two small, faded, handwritten notebooks with the year 1790 written on the cover alongside the name William Dawes. Now, Jed, do you have anything that springs to mind when I say the name William Dawes? Um, just that famous quote from Bram Stoker's Dracula, doors, doors everywhere. Yes, <laughs> that's great. This, this is doors with a D-A-W-E-S. Ah, doors point. Excellent. I was hoping that you, uh, you might have at least some kind of name recognition there. Completely right, doors point. destroyed in the 30s by the uh, bridge. Yes, yeah, actually, yeah, it's a funny point. I, it, I don't go there very often. I don't know if you spend much time walking around that point. I think it's still quite beautiful from what I gather, but it is it's right underneath the Harbour Bridge. Yeah, it is it's it is really nice there, but um it's it's it, there's so many places in Sydney Harbour where you can really get an idea of what it would have been like 
200 plus years ago. And that is absolutely not one of them. Endorse Point is not one of them. <laughs> well, while, you, while you've been spending a bit of time at Doors Point, have you noticed uh, Doors Battery by any chance? I don't think so. It's uh, right under the southeast pylon of the Harbour Bridge. So that comes right into it. And it's a, now a heritage listed uh, site. And it's, yeah, it's a battery. So it's a, where you would install cannons for defending the harbour and uh, store your gunpowder so that you can blow up said cannons towards uh, enemies were they to come into the harbour. When I'm usually under that pylon, it's for one purpose only, and that's knocking back a few pints at the Harbourview Hotel, so my my eyes aren't focused on the battery. Well, there you go. So so Dawes Battery and uh, Dawes Point, are they're probably the, the two parts of Sydney that are named after William Dawes. They're obviously in the same place. And they are somewhat named after him because he was, amongst other things, the um, appointed engineer and officer of artillery as part of the first fleet when they arrived. So he was responsible for constructing these batteries, and he constructed quite a few, I think, but Dawes Battery is named after him. He did a couple of other things. Any other ideas what he might have been involved in? I don't. He was an artilleryman. He was maybe a a farmer. I mean, I think everyone was a bit of a jack-of-all-trades in the early colony. Yeah, so he was he was part of the the, the naval forces and in, in charge of the artillery, and he also was particularly important in doing something that you are quite professionally capable in in these days: sailing. Uh, professionally, I don't I don't know whether you've changed your career recently, but <laughs> last time I checked, you weren't a sailor. No, I haven't sailed in decades. Um, surveying. Yeah, yeah. He um, this story is a bit odd, uh, but apparently the surveyor general who was sent out with the first fleet. fleet was just really quite old and, and a bit past it. And so they got there and he just wasn't up for the job of surveying and laying out the plans for Sydney and Parramatta. And so Dawes just did it instead. Yeah, I can I mean yeah, I can definitely see that happening because it feels like with a lot of colonial appointments the emphasis was on um sort of nepotism and who was owed favours and whatnot. And Sydney would have been like a pretty outrageously rugged environment to be in with none of the right equipment. Um yeah, so I can totally see the old bloke being like, well, I'm not actually fit for this job. I'm just here in a sort of semi-retired fashion. Yeah, and and Dawes was quite a young man when he when he arrived. He was uh, 26 years old, so a fairly young uh, man in the Navy. He was a, and a very talented and bright uh, man as well. So he was up for the job, apparently. He had, was pretty well-educated. He was able to do all the surveying and laying out of the city. So we also, in some ways, uh, have, have William Dawes as the founder of Sydney and streets like George Street. Mm. And he also was in charge of uh, the observatory. That, in fact, that was one, apart from all this other jack-of-all-trade stuff that he was doing, he was originally sent out. His, his job was actually to set up the observatory. He was given um, equipment uh, for making observations of the stars, and told to establish an observatory in Sydney. But the observatory we have would be newer than that, or did he sort of have a very long tenure as a, as a man about town? Well, I'm glad that you bring that up, because, yeah, there, there's no way they were building an observatory as, as impressive as the one we have now in the first four years of the colony, and he was only there for the first four years. Right. So, yeah, so he's, I guess, um, he would have chosen that piece of land as where to place the observatory, but he, yeah, I don't think anything of the building that he would have established is still there. Stupid place for an observatory, too much light pollution. Yeah, they, they weren't to know that at that point, I guess. It was probably pretty dark back then. 
another thing that you might not know about William Dawes, in fact, you probably don't, is that he seems to be quite a rare man in that every piece of historical legacy left by other people about him seems to unanimously agree that he was a really, really good guy. (laughs) And I have some quotes. Excellent. Thank you. A mate on the Sirius who's writing home to his mum, so doesn't really have any reason to lie about this guy. It's just a letter to his mum. Says that uh, Dawes was a most amiable man. He is kind to everyone, has a great share of knowledge, and studious yet ever cheerful esteemed by all who know him. What a guy. Are you sure he wasn't trying to set doors up with his mum? Well, we have enough people saying that he's a great guy. It's, he's an inter- it's interesting. We also have William Wilberforce, who the famous uh, abolitionist, who comes up a little later in the story. I've tried to cut that out as much as possible. It's not Sydney-related. Who said that, I don't believe there is in the world a more solid, honest, indefatigable man. And one of his later work colleagues said that Dawes is one of the most excellent of the earth. With great sweetness of disposition and self-command, he possesses the most unbending principles. <laughs> yeah, but what was he really like? Come on, where's the dirt? Well, the interesting thing is we are going to hear about these unbending principles, and he's actually, I, to some extent, he might have lived up to all of this reputation. He He's a very interesting man who did some really important things in these notebooks. So we're going to get to the notebooks right now. They weren't just any old diaries about what he had for breakfast and how he felt each day. And in fact, they weren't diaries at all. Do you have any guesses as to what might have been contained in these notebooks? Well, I'm secretly hoping they were his survey field notes or uh, astrological observations. That that would be great. And sometimes things like that are mentioned a little bit. But no, it's nothing to do with that. But it does contain a lot of knowledge that otherwise we would not have access to. Maybe it's some kind of like um, Mean Girls-esque burn book where he like... I guess Tench was more the guy doing that, like writing everything about everyone else in the colony and what he thought of them. Yeah, so it's not that. You have to remember this guy is is a very nice guy with very uh, strong principles. principles. He's he's a very uh, intelligent man and he's uh, greatly interested in language. Ah, he's um he's he's writing down the local languages and dialects. Yeah, so the notebooks uh, recorded Dawes' attempts to learn and document the local indigenous language of the Sydney area. Very cool. How did he go? Well, he did relatively well, we think. But as I said at the start, he was only there for four years. And so what we're going to quickly find out is he didn't quite have enough time to fully, fully develop everything. But the notebooks are pretty comprehensive in doing what they can do. They, the first one contains a series of grammar tables uh, for verbs, just like you might find if you had like a textbook for French or Latin. And the second is more like a dictionary, which is arranged alphabetically with translations of indigenous words uh, into English. And before you freak out and worry that I'm just going to talk about grammar for an entire episode, uh, the notebooks are also fascinating because they also record as examples of the language that, uh, showing how he learnt it the fairly intimate conversations that Dawes had with Indigenous Australians and the conversations that he observed amongst them. So did these play... I mean, these sort of didn't come to light until the 70s. Did they play a role in our understanding of of where different tribal groups were and how, um, you know, different tribal groups and nations related to one another linguistically? Well, that's a very good question. It's still somewhat difficult to say exactly where uh, boundaries were between different language groups and how they interacted with one another because of the disruption uh, of uh, colonial settlement in Australia and just how quickly that uh, 
removed a lot of the speaking of those languages around Sydney and also the yeah the ability to to find that information out so they they're, they're more useful for knowing the the language that was spoken actually in in where the city of Sydney is today and that area around there and then we have much later sources on areas in greater Sydney that are far less reliable because they are later and there's already been a great deal of disruption to indigenous way of life yeah yeah I've been reading a bit about what indeed you know what indigenous um i guess life was like at that point in time of the early years and um I, like it's it's something that I, I was already well aware of but just hearing like the 90 percent death it's like we're estimated 90 percent death rate of smallpox in a, in a few year period it's it's unfathomable how any any cultural group can can continue a legacy through something like that yeah, definitely the the effects of disease and especially smallpox are, are hugely devastating. And that's very early on. I think that's in the second or third year in the Sydney area after the first fleet arrives. Yeah. So really, yeah, Dawes, is, Dawes, because he was actually there from the very start and took an active interest and was engaging in conversations with Aboriginal Australians, his uh, records are actually fairly legitimate of how that language was spoken at the time. And the disruption was so major that fairly quickly afterwards the language wasn't in the same shape and didn't have the same uh, number of native speakers able to speak it amongst themselves as it as it previously had mm. um so ever since these uh notebooks have been published in 1972 when our old friend phyllis found them uh they've been studied uh, extensively by linguists who have actually been able to use them to reconstruct a grammatical outline of how the Sydney language uh, would have been and so this episode is going to be about the man who wrote the notebooks, William Dawes, about the Aboriginal figures who we know about from the conversations that he recorded in the notebook. And hopefully along the way, we can learn a little bit about the local Sydney Aboriginal language that was actually documented there. Cool. So to begin, a tiny bit of historical background begin. setting. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah. Look, we, we've got the... Now, now you know what it's about. Just tune in. There's another two hours to go, right? So to begin, a tiny bit of historical background. Jed, do you happen to know what the first Aboriginal words uh, heard by the First Fleet were? Um, I bet there's something that we still use today. The First Fleet, okay, so it might be like Eora or Gadigal, but I don't know. Uh, it, it wasn't. They're not words that we use anymore today uh, in the Indigenous language, but uh, that that is, they're not words that English speakers use from, borrowing from the Indigenous language, but they are words that we use quite often. Uh, they are the the words are wara wara in uh, the indigenous language of Sydney, which means go away, go away. <laughs> yeah. Seems pretty fitting. Yeah, you picked the wrong cove. Yeah, so presumably, uh, actually, not even presumably, none, none of the first fleet would have understood what this meant at the time. Uh, and in fact, understanding the local language had been a problem for Cook as well when he'd been in Botany Bay. Um, because his previously unbelievably helpful Polynesian translator clearly couldn't converse with the indigenous Australians, uh, because as we know, the uh, Polynesians actually spread out roughly a thousand years ago across all of the islands in the Pacific, whereas the indigenous Australians had been in Australia for over 40,000 years. So they're very unrelated languages. And um, pushing, this is going to test how much uh, sort of ancillary research you've done, but would it be reasonable to expect that... um, someone with an understanding of the language of Port Jackson would would be able to um, understand what was going on in Botany Bay anyway? Yes. So, uh, yeah, let's let's come to that. So the, the language um, of the probably the north uh, shore of Botany Bay would have been the 
the language spoken by the Eora people, so, or what we now call the Eora people. So it would have been the same language as uh, Port Jackson. And kind of that area from the eastern, eastern sub, what's now the eastern suburbs and probably the lower North Shore and uh, the, t- the North Shore of Botany Bay, so the airport and things like that, west towards Parramatta would have been uh, the same language group, we think. Okay. And then uh, south of Botany Bay um, and the Georges River, we have a different language group. And then kind of from Broken Bay northward, uh, a diff- another language group again. And then the western uh, suburbs of Sydney, west of Parramatta, was uh, the Darug language, which we think was actually quite closely related to the language of the Eora people. Okay. Yeah, but as you brought up there, it's a really good question. The, the, even within what's now Greater Sydney, there were multiple languages. And so... Actually, the first fleet had arrived with a short short list of, of w- Aboriginal words that Captain Cook had compiled in northern Queensland when his ship had been uh, repaired there, which was... <laughs> I can just imagine what his list was like. <laughs> yeah, it also was completely useless. Because, well, not, Yeah, I think there were two words that, that maybe were somewhat recognisable, possibly, to the Indigenous Australians in Sydney. So that it's... Yeah, the the Europeans didn't have any notion of just how diverse uh, the Aboriginal languages in Australia were, which at the time was probably somewhere 250, 350 different languages in Australia. Hmm. It's kind of unexpected. I mean, Cook was, you know, an, eth- an ethnographer, I suppose, and um, did travel up the whole East Coast. You would have thought that he would have um, not necessarily learned any of the language, but maybe been cognizant of the fact that there was a lot of diversity yeah, I mean, I I don't know how many times he actually stopped on land and had any interactions with Indigenous Australians. And I also believe, at least in Botany Bay, that the Indigenous Australians were kind of trying to avoid uh, interaction with the Cook fleet when they stopped there. Yeah. So they, they weren't very successful in interacting with Indigenous Australians. So despite uh, this complete lack of knowledge, the first fleet were under orders from the king to establish relationships and understanding with Indigenous Australians. And furthermore, similar to Cook, as we were just saying, they found this quite difficult because Aboriginal people really weren't very interested in the kind of trinkets that Europeans were offering to try to establish trade or really in interacting with them uh, in large part. So for these four years that we have doors in Sydney, I just wanted to quickly go over what the interactions with the uh, Aboriginal population in terms of complex and continuing linguistic interchange would have been. So for the first year, there was very little contact with Aboriginal people after arriving in January. And so by December, they kidnapped uh, their first Aboriginal uh, Arabanu that was uh, part of the Sydney settlement to try to establish intercommunication with the Aboriginal people, so to try to learn something of the language from Arabanu. Uh, in the next year, 1789, There was the devastating smallpox outbreak, which we talked about uh, in the Aboriginal community. And that led to, I think you said, something like 90% possibly of the Aboriginal population dying. It was massively catastrophic. And at least two uh, orphans from that uh, smallpox outbreak, Nambari and Burong, came into the European settlement. Sadly, also during this time, Arabanu, the first Aboriginal who was kidnapped to try to learn the language, also died of smallpox. So that's so this is after two years. They still have very limited uh, contact. Around uh, two years after arrival, they then decided to kidnap some more uh, Aboriginal Australians. Uh, this time it was Benelong and Colby. Uh, Benelong is uh, probably quite well known to a lot of people. 
And although Colby quickly escapes, Ben Long stays and has, has more interactions with the colony, which we won't go into here. That's probably for another episode. Mm. Uh, but gen- generally, they, 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 there's a quote that the natives continue to shun us. And so towards the end of 1790s, so this is nearly three years after arriving, is only it's only then when Dawes uh, can start to really get uh, some understanding of the language and starts his notebook, uh, inter- recording interactions with Aboriginals and what he's learning of their language. And so by the start of the third year, the uh, judge advocate for the colony, David Collins, wrote that it was unfortunately found that our knowledge of their language consisted at this time of only a few terms for such things as being visible could not be well mistaken. <laughs> so they really yeah. weren't able to have a conversation. They just knew a couple of like pointing at things and saying the name of it. Yeah, they'd got to day one of, of your gap year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so... Tench does, uh, Watkin Tench, who's one of the people who writes a, a diary recording what was happening in the settlement, does record that after the, after three years, it does look like there are more Aboriginal people kind of on the fringes of the European settlement in Sydney, and there's a little bit more interaction. And from this, this fourth year, so from the end of the third year to the end of the fourth year, that Dawes has his conversational exchanges with Aboriginal people and starts to learn their language. And then really suddenly he's gone. Do you have any idea what led to William Dawes leaving? Hopefully a horrific scandal. Yeah, it was yeah, it's a scandal of sorts. Certainly. Um I don't know. He wasn't involved in Benelong going to London. Uh not not intimately that I know of. But it is to do with the the relations with the indigenous Australians. Was he involved in that spearing at Manly? Oh, when uh, Governor Philip is speared? Yeah. No, but it does uh, It does have something to do with, with uh, spearing. And it's actually when the gamekeeper is speared. Have you heard about this at all? I don't think so. I mean, I definitely have read about it in that book that your parents lent me, but I don't recall it off the top of my head. <laughs> so there's... There's a gamekeeper, which seems very, I, again, I'm not fully sure of why they, they needed to have a designated gamekeeper who was allowed to hunt the wild animals in the area. I guess they're still harking back to a different kind of society. And he was fairly well known by everyone. I mean, even the the European diaries say that, that he was a very suspect character who wasn't very pleasant. And they all suspected that he was injuring and killing Aboriginal people kind of outside of his, like, outside of the colony and they no one seems to have had anything good to say about him and i believe that whenever aboriginal people interacted with the colony they always like very explicitly singled him out as someone that they had no respect for and that they wouldn't talk to him and things like that so he was very i it's it's unclear exactly what he'd done but he was very widely uh, detested kind of from both sides and he was killed um in in the area of botany bay um uh, i feel like the reason that they had a gamekeeper was because from the British point of view, everything there belonged to the crown. And so you couldn't just have people willy nilly going off into the bush and killing the King's, you know, kangaroos. Yeah. It's a different kind of yeah notion of yeah, what, what belongs to whom and who has the right to do what. Yeah. And I think you have, a, well, I have this sort of notion of the early years of the colony of like people in, uh, interacting in the bush and going and getting what they needed and living kind of off the land. But in reality, there was probably fairly strict controls, even on free settlers from doing anything of the sort. Yeah. Yeah. So in retaliation for the fatal spearing of this detested gamekeeper, uh, the, uh, 
a revenge mission was sent out by uh, Governor Philip, and uh, Dawes was supposed to be one of the leaders of this this mission. And the original uh, instructions were to capture two Aboriginals and bring back the heads of ten others in bags. And this was originally this was uh, protested against by Dawes and also by uh, well actually by Watkin Tench, who was another leader of the group, who managed to get this changed to capturing maybe six Aboriginals with the view to perhaps executing two. So it's still horrific, but it's less horrific than decapitating 10 people. And by contrast, Dawes just point blank refused uh, to participate at all. However, he was a very religious man. And so after consulting the Minister of Religion, he begrudgingly agreed after all to take part in this revenge mission, which uh, you could probably imagine was a complete farce. And they tried to get through the bush to find these indigenous Australians to capture. They were completely unsuccessful. They were bogged down. They didn't, I don't think they even saw any Aboriginal people who were clearly forewarned and much better at making their way around the land. And they came back with nothing to show for this revenge mission at all. Nevertheless, Dawes was completely racked with guilt. And so when the order came from the governor, Philip, to repeat the mission, the messenger who took this order to Dawes found it impossible to persuade him to obey the order. And he ended up being sent back to Philip with a letter from Dawes stating that he would not comply with these directions ever again. Good on him. Yeah, well, exactly. However, this is not just a private citizen refusing to take part in the lynch mob. It's actually, in official terms, the orders of of a commanding officer being refused. It's treason. Yeah, I mean, it, it was, and I, I imagine it probably still is, a military offense to just reject orders from your uh, commanding officer. Yeah. So Phillips did stress the seriousness of, of refusing these orders and that these that this would have consequences, but Dawes was just not to be moved on this second time, and he refused to take part. And so it really seems that his career never recovered from this. Yeah. He was basically, a year later, he was sent back uh, to England. He then worked uh, for a short time in Sierra Leone, And he ended up in relative poverty in the West Indies, uh, working in education and anti-slavery advocacy. He was, interestingly, he was, I mean, as you can probably imagine at this point, a fairly progressive man and well-educated man. He was uh, prominent in circles in London for the time that he was there uh, with people such as the famous abolitionist William Wilberforce. And Wilberforce actually campaigned for him to be the first superintendent of education in New South Wales. Doors. Yeah. When was that? Uh, so it was Wilberforce in the colony. Would've... Sorry, I thought we were in the West Indies. Wilberforce would have been back in London right. as a politician. Oh, he was. He wanted Dawes to be sent back to New South Wales to be the director yeah. of education. Okay. Exactly. And you'll be unsurprised, unsurprised to hear that the British government refused to send mm. Dawes back as... Well, the good ones never last in the public service, do they? <laughs> in this case, certainly not. So Dawes did express a wish to stay in Sydney... Uh, and he expressed on multiple times that he would like to return, but he was never, ever given a post in Australia again. Yep. Checks out. <laughs> Wouldn't go on a murderous murderous lynch mob. You're out. Can't keep your job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, what happened to his linguistic knowledge? It, at the time, in these first four years, he was well known as the, the person who knew about Aboriginal languages. Uh, so what contention in one of his uh, published uh, diaries that were, I think, quite popular, uh, said that of the language of New South Wales, I once hoped to have it, to have an exposition, but the abrupt departure of Mr. Dawes precludes me from executing this part of my original intention, in which he had promised to cooperate with me, and in which he, has ad- he had advanced his researches beyond the reach of competition. 
However, it didn't take long for the memory of his linguistic understanding to fade, and by 1814, while he's still actually alive and languishing in uh, somewhere in the West Indies, uh, William Shelley, a missionary who was instrumental in the creation of the Aboriginal school or native institution at Parramatta and Blacktown, wrote that, It is remarkable that though this colony has been settled nearly 30 years, no one has attempted the study of the language of the natives. Yeah, right. So it seems to have been completely forgotten fairly quickly that there could be notebooks that were written by doors that could provide a guide to the local indigenous language. And furthermore, as we've discussed a little bit, the displacement and destruction of indigenous culture, the devastating effects of disease, and the increasingly widespread use of New South Wales pigeon between colonists and indigenous Australians, which is basically a combination of indigenous and uh, English vocabulary in simplified forms, meant that, yeah, basically the opportunity to learn and record the indigenous language of Sydney had disappeared by the mid-1800s. Yeah. Well, and I also think a factor might have been that as Sydney became bigger it became a more like a i guess a diverse melting pot of indigenous cultures as well as every all the other cultures so there would have been by the mid 1800s you'd have to expect that of the indigenous people living in and around sydney there would have been a wide diversity and yeah there, it stands to reason that even english or some sort of pigeon would have become a lingua franca for people coming from all all sorts of different parts of the colony and other parts of new south wales Yes, and that's a very good point because uh, because uh, there were so many Aboriginal languages and these were very distinct groups that had their own cultures and uh, own identities. When they were suddenly disrupted by colonial settlement, they found themselves pushed together in groups that weren't speaking the same language. And so these kind of this pidgin language started to develop so that so that Aboriginal people could talk amongst themselves and to uh, the settlers and grazers who were rapidly taking over this land. And interestingly, that this uh, language, the pidgin uh, that was spoken across wide swathes of New South Wales was actually heavily influenced by the original language of Sydney, which is where it kind of started out. And then that was just brought around New South Wales. Do you have any examples of words that, um, uh, like words from Eora Nation uh, or other tribes of Sydney that we might be familiar with today? I certainly do, but I wanted to get to them at the end of the podcast. Okay. I promise I will. <laughs> but one interesting thing about this pidgin language is that that actually there's a, a Creole, uh, which is so a fully developed language that is a kind of blend of different languages, uh, but spoken as with native speakers in the Northern Territory that, again, resulted from lots of displacement that still contains elements of this Sydney language, which is kind of interesting to think. Mm. Anyhow, we were saying that Dawes' knowledge was quickly forgotten and in 1924 there's an amusing academic paper it's not amusing it's sad but in hindsight where an academic says there's no man who ought to have given us so much information but who has given us so little he was the man of letters the student of language of anthropology of astronomy of botany of surveying and of engineering the duty to posterity of such a man in such singular circumstances was that he should be always writing and in fact he wrote nothing at all that can now be read (laughs) I mean, he was right. In, he managed to... The saving grace was the last um, particle of that sentence. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So luckily, this rather melancholy note can now be read with delicious irony because his notebooks have reappeared and we actually do have some of his knowledge. And where were they hiding? Do we know? They were, Yeah, they were just in a, in a library in London in uh, the School of Oriental and African Studies. In... So we don't have any idea of when they might have ended up there. I, I can tell you how they ended up there, yeah. I, was, I wasn't sure if you wanted to know. There was a 
prominent head of the Admiralty who was interested in languages in the Pacific. When Dawes went back to London, I imagine somehow in the intellectual circles it got into this guy, his last name was Marsden, I think it was William Marsden, into his hands. And then he had a collection that would have been, I imagine, quite extensive. And it just kind of stayed in that uh, collection, which was then bequeathed to King's College and just sat in the library of King's College for a really long time without anyone really knowing it was there or looking into it. And was Dawes alive in 1825 when uh, that other bloke wrote that slanderous expose on him? Oh, sorry, that was 1924. Oh, okay, sorry. <laughs> yeah, sorry. But in, yeah, the, even in 1814, people were saying no one's ever, no one's learnt this stuff. So they'd forgotten quite quickly. And he was alive at that point. He was just in the West Indies. But then for the next 150 years, yeah, people just forgot that this had happened. And no one was looking for the notebooks, really. Except for Philippa. Phyllis, I think was her name. Phyllis, sorry. So what do we learn from these notebooks? I want to give a quick attempt at saying something about the, the indigenous language. And I apologize in advance for all of my shortcomings because I'm not a linguist and this isn't my area of expertise. This indigenous language is very interesting because it's quite different from English in that it makes extensive use of suffixes. And so here's my very flawed attempt to try to explain vaguely what that might mean. I'm not sure if this is right, Jed, but did you briefly study Spanish or am I completely misremembering Oh, that? God. Uh, very briefly. That's good because I'm not going to go past hablo español. ¿Qué? <laughs> so, I believe in Spanish. I, I've never studied Spanish, but I believe in Spanish. Instead of saying I, I speak Spanish, you can just say hablo español. Speak Spanish. Yeah, because the hablo, the o at the end, indicates that it means I speak and not you speak or something like that, because that would be hablas. Is that correct? Yeah, I think so. So you can just kind of drop off the I. Equally, uh, instead of using all of the tiny little words that we do in English to say something like, do you speak Spanish uh, with a do you, you could just say hablas español, and then that just that one word would contain all of the meaning that we have to add some extra stuff in for. This is adding fuel to my uh, understanding that this podcast is actually about Galveston in Texas. <laughs> Anyway, getting straight to it. Basically, what we need to imagine is a language where the lots of endings can be added to the verb, like in this case, to speak, uh, to indicate, for instance, who did it, if it happened in the past or the future, uh, who it happened to, why it happened, etc., etc., instead of using lots of little words like we do in English. Is that making any sense? Mm -hmm. Cool. So, for an example, this might seem like an incredible tangent. Do you know that enormous sculpture that was installed fairly recently in Hyde Park of enormous upright bullets and fallen bullet casings? Yeah, it looks like cigarettes. <laughs> yeah. Have you? I've, I've seen it a few times. I think it was put up in about 2015. Do you know anything about it? No. Neither did I. It's actually a war memorial for Indigenous Australians who have died serving in the Australian Armed Services. I mean, I assumed it was a war memorial. Yeah, and it is right next to the War Memorial, right? Yeah. And the name of the sculpture is actually a direct quote of an excerpt from Dawes's diary. And it's a, it's a translation of an indigenous word into English. And so I would like to apologize in advance for my mispronunciation of this, but the name of this sculpture comes straight from Dawes's diary, and it, the indigenous word is yinin madyemi, and it means thou didst let fall. So in this case, in English, we use four shortish words to express a thought. Thou, so it's about you. Didst, is the, did, puts it in the past. Let shows that it's passive. And then fall is the action that's happening. But all of these subtleties of meaning are conveyed in the multiple endings that are added on to yin in the indigenous word. So you have yin in ma, yin, mi. And it's one long word. 
Right. And can you break up the component parts? I can't tell you what each one means because my research I, was somewhat cursory. But yes, there are people who know exactly what all of those little bit of endings are doing. Which one's t- saying that it's about you and which one's saying that it's in the past and which one's saying that it's passive. There you go. Yeah. So so that that's the sh- cursory explanation of uh, some, uh, one part of the language that we learned from Dawes' notebooks. The notebooks also contain ample evidence of companionable social interactions with Aboriginal people. And they contain things from endearment to admonishment, uh, everyday kind of pragmatic conversations to really quite esoteric uh, conversations. And the most moving and frequently quoted of all of these kind of conversations that takes place in the journals, uh, some of the conversations that Dawes had with a young Aboriginal woman who he usually called Patie, but that's short for Patia Garang, uh, which is the local Aboriginal word for Eastern Grey Kangaroo. Mm. And two pieces of evidence suggest that Patia uh, might have stayed in Dawes's hut. So he provides the indigenous language sentences and his translations for Min Yin, which means Min Yin Bial Nanga Diami. Min Yin is what? Bial is ne- makes it negative on no and Nanga Dia mi is sleep, past, and you. Nanga, sleep, dia, past, mi, you. And so altogether it means, why don't you sleep? And Patier says, gandalin, which means because of the candle. <laughs> Too bloody bright. Yes, and the candle comes up again because then the next thing that we have, another thing we have recorded in the, in the notebooks is daraya diawu, which means a mistake and then it's got a thing that shows that it's in the past and then a thing that shows that it's me talk- uh, talking about myself. So first person singular. So it means I made a mistake. And Dawes has written, this is what Patier said after she desired that I take away the blanket when she meant the candle. Right. <laughs> Bloody candle. <laughs> Turn off the light, rips off the doona. <laughs> yeah. Damn, miss- yeah. So there were, there were obviously some, some difficulties in communication, but they, they obviously had also reached a level of understanding with each other that was fairly intimate yeah. to be able to to correct mistakes like that. And probably one of the most touching and intimate words that's in the notebook is a, a word putua, which uh, Dawes has uh, translated as to warm one's hand by the fire and then to gently squeeze the fingers of another person. Mm. Good thing to have a word for. I like the sound of that. I know it's a really beautiful word and it's and a beautiful concept. And it's one of those interesting words that I feel like every once in a while, a book of, with a compilation of words from all over the world that express concepts that we don't have in English mm. comes out. And I feel like this is a really great example of a beautiful Prime word. Prime candidate. That, yeah. So quite a few of the sources that I read were really quick to suggest that uh, Patier and Dawes were lovers because of these kind of indications that they might have been in close quarters and that she might have been in his tent. But however, then I also read that Patier's presence in Dawes's hut doesn't really necessarily imply any physical intimacy because Dawes was probably sh- would have been sharing his dwelling with several other, other officers, given that it's the very early years of the colony and accommodation was at a premium. Probably wasn't all that private where they were. But that's not to say they couldn't have found privacy elsewhere and they couldn't have had an intimate relationship. It's, it's not clear from the diary, but it's certainly really interesting that they had a very close relationship and she was probably one of the main people who he learned the Aboriginal language from. Do you from. think a relationship like that would have been, I mean, problematic at the time? It doesn't seem so because everyone had nothing but good things to say about him. And it would have been, as you said, small society. Everyone would have known everyone's business. Yeah. So one thing that's been really interesting is that from the perspective of Patier, 
it would have taken a great deal of trust and courage and strength on her part to begin this kind of uh, relationship of whatever type with Dawes and to go and talk to him regularly because of the the nature of the situation that she found herself in. And she would have had to have been quite a powerful and strong-willed person to be able to take on that relationship. And so in 2014, there was a Bangara dance theater production called Patia Garang, uh, which told her story through her eyes. And Stephen Page, who was the artistic director, or, and I think still is at the Bangara Dance Theater, said that her tremendous display of trust indoors resulted in a gift of cultural knowledge back to her people almost 200 years later. And I feel her presence around us, with us, and as we create this new work. Yeah. So there's kind of a really nice, yeah, nice outcome of this of this relationship between Dawes and Patia Garang. Yeah, and all just sitting, uh, sitting secretly in London for 150 years or so. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I think very few Sydney siders have heard about these notebooks or this relationship that I, I mean, I was definitely not aware of them at all until very recently. So this gift of cultural and linguistic knowledge uh, has even aided in the reconstruction of the Darug language, uh, which is now being taught uh, actively in schools in Western Sydney. And I believe there are also workshops to learn the Aboriginal language of Sydney, of the Sydney area at Sydney festivals sometimes. So there's been some really cool results of these notebooks being found. And apart from that, the language is actually with us every single day in a number of words which uh, were borrowed and have now become parts of standard English, which is what you were asking about earlier. Waited very patiently. Can you guess some words from the Indigenous language of Sydney that are now part of English? Potentially quite a few of the words for things that exist in Australia that don't exist elsewhere, because it would have been one of the first places that we would have come into contact with those things. So I'm going to go with some maybe like boomerang, kangaroo... Yeah, they're they're really good guesses. Boomerang, boomerang, we do think is a combination of uh, two words from the local language. You were very wallab, wallaby is a word from the local language. So that's now the name of the Australian rugby team. Dingo is also a word from the local language. Corroboree, mm. a boogie, like the the boogie hole that you swim at at beaches. Boogie. Bo- I apologize. Bogey. <laughs> the bogey hole that you sl- swim at, uh, that, that bogey was the indigenous word for swim in the Sydney area. Ah, didn't know that. And even Waratah, the state emblem of New South Wales. Cool. So, uh, as you would no doubt be aware, there's also a long list of place names in Sydney with Aboriginal origins, but a lot of them have really uncertain explanations. However, thanks to a map drawn in pencil inside the front cover of Dawes Notebook, we know that Dara was the indigenous name for Dawes Point. So next time you're in the city, perhaps consider taking a stroll to Dawes Point or Dara and consider the interactions that took place there and the legacy of Patia Garang and of William Dawes. I will do that instead of walking straight into the pub. Thanks, Alistair. Great. <laughs> you're very welcome. Interesting. Great. Well, I'm glad that you enjoyed it, Jed. And now comes the really tricky part of the episode for me. Do you have a clue for what I can look forward to in a fortnight's time when it's you up for telling the story? I don't know why you think this is a tricky part of the episode since I've only done one clue so far and it was rubbish. (laughs) Well, I know that you'll be back with a vengeance this time. (laughs) Okay, so this story that I'll be telling in a fortnight's time is about a place that has been pulling beers for almost 200 years. And in 1823, as now... Having a drink there is and was a momentous occasion. Oh, okay. I, the, the thing that immediately springs to mind is that pub that's um, in the rocks. They're kind of a very old craft brewery in a way. They, they make their own beer. 
and I forget what it's called, but I feel like it has something to do with the Napoleonic Wars, like the Battle of <laughs> like Trafalgar or something like that. Is it? Is it got a name to do with Waterloo or Trafalgar? Or something? Well, there's the the craft brewer in the rocks. You're maybe thinking of is the Lord Nelson. Yeah, the Lord Nelson. That's what. But I'm there's also of. a pub in the rocks called the Hero of Waterloo. Yeah, I'm thinking of both of them. That, they're, my, they're my guesses. Something to do with one of those two. I think they're quite old pubs. They're the only ones that I can think of immediately. Would having a drink there today be momentous? Well, that's the thing. Not really. And, I, and that would it have been momentous in 1823? Yeah, I mean, that is a good clue. I So far, nothing occurs to me about that part of it. And that's the that's the really tricky part of the clue. So I'll, I'll give it some more thought over the next fortnight. And maybe I can come up with something. I would love it if you did, because if I've stumped you on the first listen, but then you solve it, I feel like that is the <laughs> ultimate of clues. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, if it's just ridiculously hard and I have no idea, I've never heard of it, then there's no point in the clue. Well, what if I really think about 1823 yeah. and it comes up? Well, uh, you're, you're right that after last fortnight, I was determined to... I've, I've invested an enormous amount in this clue and really come together with nothing for the story yet. So I've got some work ahead of me. <laughs> all right (laughs) well thanks for listening everyone we hope you enjoyed this week's episode of stories from sydney history of the harbour city as much as we enjoyed making it if you've got any questions comments complaints or you'd like to have a stab at jed's clue then you can reach out to us through our facebook page stories from sydney or by email at stories from sydney at gmail.com and if you have a suggestion for a story that you think we'll all enjoy please email us but do mention in the subject line if it's for myself or alistair And if you know us, just send it to us directly so that uh, it's kept secret from the other person and we can have a surprising and fresh story every episode. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to support us, the best thing that you can do is leave a rating and a review wherever you found this podcast so that we can spread the joy farther and wider. And feel free to share the love with your friends and family, which we know many of you must be doing because we've got a lot more people listening to our podcast than we anticipated. So Thank you all very much and see you next time for my story from Sydney.